All right, well, we're kind of landing the, the ship here on a series. Um, next week, we're starting a brand new series called Balance, and I just, it's, it's all about balancing life and relationships and ministry, and uh, you don't want to miss that. But um, for this week, we are landing the ship on, this, uh, on this, this series called The Whole Story. And let me tell you a little bit about what it is and kind of the premise behind it. Essentially, the whole story is about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And the reason we felt like we wanted to spend a, just a, a, an entire month talking about Jesus, specifically as it relates to the Old Testament, is because of something Jesus did. In fact, you may have read this before, but it's a, it's a little text that what happens, and many of you are familiar at least with who Jesus is, comes to the earth, performs some incredible miracles, comes to the earth, does just some phenomenal teachings, comes to the earth and just does a ton of different stuff that, that people didn't expect him to do, some people expected him to do, back and forth. Well, eventually Jesus does something that we, each week we've said that no one expected him to do. He died. Everyone thought that Jesus was going to be the Messiah, and everyone thought who, whoever the Messiah was going to be was going to restore the nation of Israel to its place of prominence in the world. And no one thought that the Messiah was going to die, and especially no one thought that God would die. Because honestly... That doesn't even make sense for God to die. And so for three years, Jesus had teachings. For three years, Jesus gathered followings. For three years, Jesus performed miracles. For, for three years, Jesus fed people. For three years, just, I mean, momentum, 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 momentum. And in a night, the entire momentum of the, of the kingdom of God felt like it had completely been squashed when Jesus died. And over the course of the next 40 days, the resurrected Jesus shows back up. And what's so significant is the very first thing that Jesus does when he shows back up. Because what you or I perhaps would project into the story, if we're reading the Bible or if we're writing the Bible and we're thinking, okay, this is what Jesus would do. This is what I would do. I would say, in light of the fact that I just rose from the dead, here's what you ought to do to tell my story. In light of the fact that I just rose from the dead, here's what you ought to do to tell people about my name. In light of what I, you know, just rose from the dead, here's how you ought to act. Here's how you ought to interact. But the first thing that Jesus does when he raises from the dead is not to give anyone anything to do. But he opened the Old Testament and he would say, look, I want you to see me. And I want you to understand that the entire Old Testament was pointing to me, and that I'm the fulfillment of all the laws, of all the prophets, and of Moses. Now, here's what's interesting about that. What's at the epicenter of our faith, what's at the epicenter of our faith is not something to do, but it's a Messiah to see. Many of us were raised in backgrounds where what we thought the culmination of faith was was simply a list of lessons, a list of morals, a list of, of this is what you ought to do and this is what you ought not do. But Jesus would say, at the epicenter of your faith is not what to do and what not to do. It's a realization that he is in fact the Messiah. But what's interesting, what's interesting, especially when you read the Old Testament, is it's interesting that we all have a tendency to miss it. Because we read scripture in a vacuum. We don't read Genesis as it relates to John. We don't read Exodus as it relates to Luke. We don't really read, you know, we don't really read Lamentations anyways. But if we did read Lamentations, we wouldn't have any clue how that has to do with Galatians. You know what I'm saying? So we read it and we read the New Testament, New Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament, Old Testament with no interconnection. But when Jesus taught, I mean, this is fascinating. When Jesus taught the Bible, 
He taught the interconnectedness of the Testaments, of the covenants, and especially how the Old Testament pointed and built and built and built and built to the New Testament. In fact, this is how he says it in the book of Luke. If you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and open there. Although we're not going to be here forever. Luke chapter 24, this is what happens. Jesus just appears to his disciples. First time, you know, holes in the hands. Fellas, check it out, check it out, check it out. I mean, come on, you don't believe me? Come, just put your hands in my, my wrist, which is an interesting, you know, they're like, ew, that's weird. But so and, and, and they're all just in amazement about what happened. And then he said to them, verse 44 of chapter 24. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus would say, this isn't new. This isn't new, but it's so easy to miss. This isn't new. In fact, God has been planning. God has been preparing. But you all have the tendency, we all have the tendency, and the disciples who sat with Jesus, he's, he's sitting there telling them, hey, this is what it's all pointing towards, and this is nothing new. But once I tell it to you again, it's going to be like it's brand new because it's so easy to miss. And then, verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scripture. In other words, and then, what he taught them next helped them to understand not something to do, not a behavior to modify, not a moral compass that ought to be switched or changed, but a Messiah to see. And specifically, himself as the Messiah. Now the good thing is, or the kind of the interesting thing, is we're not the first people to miss this. We're not the first people to read the story of God in a vacuum. In fact, the early church dealt with the same thing. The early church dealt with the exact same thing, and as the people would come to know Jesus, as Jesus would eventually give them something to do, as they go into all the world and make disciples, they would go into the world, they would go from city to city to country to country, and they'd make disciples. And at first it was a very Jewish-based idea, very Jewish-based audience, very Jewish-based ministry. And then it got to everybody else who was, they considered the Gentiles. And as the Gentiles started to come to know Jesus, there were all these festivals that would happen. There were all these festivals that had incredible tradition in the Jewish tradition, incredible tradition in the Old Testament. But some of the Gentiles would thought, you know, what you and I would probably think if we still had that kind of system today, which is, hey, do we got to do all this? I mean, that's a lot of system. There's a lot of festivals. There's the festival of the unleavened bread. You know what I mean? Who the heck knows what that festival is? There's the festival of the Passover is. But we don't really know what Passover is, except for the fact that we talked about it last week. We celebrated April and we have Good Friday, except for we don't really know what Passover is. And so there's a whole lot of festivals that are going on. Do we really have to celebrate all these festivals? And here's what happens in Colossians chapter 2. Just interesting. Paul's talking to the group and he says, okay, so therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question to food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. I don't tell you, he would say church. Don't let anybody judge you because you do or you don't follow these Sabbaths. Don't let anybody judge you because you do or you don't follow these festivals because there's something that's so easy to miss. There's something that everyone who judges you is missing. There's something that everyone who would look at you and say, why aren't you, why aren't you, why aren't you, you ought to be, you ought to be, you ought to be, you ought to be, is missing. And here's what they're missing. They think the point of the festival was the festival. But the point of the festival is for the festival to point to Jesus, which you've found. This is how he says it. He said, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink 
or regard to a festival or a new morning or, or a Sabbath, that these, all of those things, he would say, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all of these festivals, all of these festivals had a purpose. And their purpose was to point to Jesus. Their purpose was to point to Jesus. And as we discovered last week, like the Passover, when God was going to send judgment down on the land and kill the firstborn, but he provided a way out of judgment, that anybody and everybody, anybody and everybody who would kill a lamb, the spotless, the perfect, the unblemished lamb, and put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would escape the judgment of God. And so year after year, year after year, decade after decade, they would take a week and celebrate the time when the blood of the lamb allowed them to escape the judgment of God. The blood of the lamb allowed them to escape the judgment of God. The blood of the lamb allowed them to escape the judgment of God. And Paul would write in hindsight and said, that all served a purpose. And the purpose wasn't simply to celebrate. The purpose was because God was going to let that have a cumulative effect to where it got deeply ingrained into the DNA of the Jewish nation, the Jewish culture, to one day on a, on a shore, on the bank of a river, there'd be a guy named John the Baptist who saw Jesus of Nazareth, who no one knew he was Jesus at the time. He was just some rando named Jesus, which is from Nazareth. It's kind of like being from Wakulla. And he looks at him and he says, hey, sorry, Wakullians. So he looks at him and he says, the Lamb of God here to take away the sin of of the world. In other words, all that Lamb of God talk, all that Lamb of God talk was for a purpose. All that spotless, the reason that it had to be the perfect Lamb wasn't just because God's, you know, uh, you know just an exclusive type person, only the best of the best, though he deserves it. It was because he wants you to know that he's someday going to send his perfect, spotless Lamb. And his blood is going to allow you to escape, allow you to be delivered into the freedom that the nation of Israel was delivered into as they escaped the judgment of God. And Paul would write, those were like a shadow that was cast by Jesus. And when you see the shadow, you don't look at the shadow and say the purpose of the shadow is the shadow. When you see a shadow, you know the shadow is simply a shadow that's, a, that's cast by the person who cast it. But it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss. Now, for the last kind of few minutes that we have together, I'm going to read a text that we haven't read in a text like this before. Because when most of us think about the, the testaments relating to each other, when most of us think about the Old Testament cumulatively building towards Jesus, what we think about is prophecy. We think about specifically as prophecy. And we haven't talked about prophecy yet. We've talked about the parallels that God would build. We've talked about the promises that God would give. We've talked about beyond that, the festivals that God would layer into it. We've talked about the physical presence of God himself who was Jesus because Jesus is the intermediary between God and man who showed up physically in the Old Testament. But the one thing that we haven't talked about is prophecy. Now, we're going to read one specific prophecy today that I just think is so, 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 it's so graphic, it's so incredible, it's so intelligent. Let me tell you, let me tell you why. Because there's, truthfully, there are tons, there are dozens, in fact, there's a few hundred prophecy in the Old Testament about what would happen with and through Jesus. Now, let me tell you why I choose this one. Because I think this is one of, if not the most graphic, 
depiction of Jesus that was written somewhere between six and 700 years before Jesus walked on earth. And here's why that's significant. Because everybody in here is at a different place in life and everybody in here is at a different place in faith. And perhaps for some of you, you're grappling. You're wrestling with this idea of faith. You're wrestling with this this idea of, is Jesus real? Is Jesus God? You're wrestling with maybe the fact of, is God even there? Perhaps you believe in God, but there's just so many different religions, so many different ways. Here's what I think. If you're at all wrestling with faith, you need to wrestle with these verses. If you're at all wrestling with the idea of faith, I mean, you know, even just a little bit interested, I think that you need to wrestle with the verses that you're going to read at some point as an adult. At some point as an adult, in case you're not wrestling with this, you you just could care less. At some point as an adult, you need to wrestle with the idea of God. At some point as an adult, you need to wrestle with the idea of eternity. And at some point in that thought process, at some point in that, you know, investigating, I just think everyone, 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 everyone who's an adult needs to wrestle with the verses that we're about to read. Because they're so graphic... And they're so specific. They have to mean something. They're so graphic and they're so specific, there has to be some kind of a conclusion that either it's just an unbelievable coincidence or perhaps God really had a plan. Perhaps throughout the course of history, God really knew what he was doing. Perhaps before Jesus stepped foot on planet Earth, God knew what was going to happen and had been planning it the entire time. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52. Now, there's a lot about the guy Isaiah, but let me just give you a brief about who Isaiah is. Isaiah is essentially a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, now, for the people of God, the nation of Israel specific, as he's speaking this to, um, the way that God would speak to them, and essentially what a prophet was, is someone that would speak to the people on behalf of God. So it would be a prophet that would come and say this, or he would come and say that, or God says this, or God thinks that, or God, you know, this is, this is the ideas of God. Because they didn't have what we have now, which is access to the scriptures. They didn't have access. They didn't really have a Bible. There's a ton of things that they didn't have that we now have how, have how God primarily speaks to us. But they had prophets. Now, common thought, well, couldn't anybody just say anything on behalf of God? Yeah, absolutely. Anybody could say anything. But here's the thing that you need to know about prophets is that whenever anybody would say anything on behalf of God, the punishment for an inaccurate prophecy was death. That anybody at any time who prophesied something about God who was an inaccurate prophecy could be killed for their mistake. So before you say God says, you better be dang sure that God said, because if God didn't say it and it doesn't really happen, then you could be killed for it. In fact, here's what's interesting. Most of the prophets who said what God said and what God said happened got killed anyways. You should, read the, you should read the minor prophets of the Old Testament. Dudes had the worst life ever. We did a, a series a couple summers ago. It's a terrible series name, but I called it um, Underrated, Overhated. So, because that, that's who they were. They were underrated. I mean, just didn't seem significant, didn't seem significant, didn't seem significant. But I mean, they just got hated, hated, hated. I mean, just constantly persecuted, constantly jailed, constantly killed, constantly ostracized by the entire community because they said what God wanted to say and what God wanted to say very often was not the popular thing to say. So people were just hauling off saying, well, I think that God says, because you could be killed like that for saying that. And even if you were right, you were probably going to be killed anyways. And so Isaiah prophesies. And he says, on behalf of God, 
or God says through the prophet Isaiah more so. This is something I want you to know. Isaiah, this is something I want you to write down. This is a document that I want to be preserved. Hundreds of years before Jesus walked on the earth about someone that's going to come that they would later title as the suffering servant. So Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In other words, people are going to know who this dude is. He's going to be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human sinless. In other words, there's going to come a point with this, sermon, this, this servant that something's going to happen to him where he's going to be so disfigured, he's going to be so beaten that you're not going to be able to recognize him. In his form, beyond that, of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. He goes on in verse 53, or chapter 53, starting in verse 1. He says, so who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. And then he goes into some, some specifics about this. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form of majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, he kind of says, oh, let, me, let me give you some specifics. Starts a little vague, works towards specificity. So he starts out and says, let me just tell you what this guy's going to be like, the servant. First off, he's not going to be like the dude who everyone would think would be the Messiah. He's not going to be like the dude, the servant that everyone would think would be just have tremendous amount of capability and ability. He's not the dude who's a beautiful man who's like 6'5", blonde hair, blue eyes, doctorate, came from the upper, you know, wealthy family, went to Harvard Law, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's the Messiah. This is like, this is like the guy who came from Crawfordville who has a half a tooth, you know? And everyone's like, I don't think he's the Messiah, you know? In fact, what's interesting, when Jesus was born, when Jesus is actually, you know, starting to, to tell people about himself, one disciple says to somebody else who would eventually become a disciple, says, you know, this is Jesus, this is where he's from. <laughs> and he looks at me and says, can anybody, can anything good come from there? I mean, come on. From where? I mean, come on. It's like saying, can anything good come from Perry, you know, besides the Pelt family? You know, I mean, that's just, that's ridiculous. He says, okay, so let me, let me, let me just tell you a little bit about him. He's going to be beyond where you think he would come from. He's, gonna be, he's not going to have majesty. You're not going to look at him and think, oh my gosh, there's the Savior, beautiful locks of golden hair. So no, he's going to be different. There's going to be nothing about him that would leave anyone to believe from where he's from to what he looks like that he would have a form of majesty. Going further to what was going to happen to him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and esteemed him not. Now it starts to get into the, the, the detail of what it's going to happen, what it's going to look like as the reality of who Jesus is becomes aware to everybody around him. And as he starts off, he says, hey, let me just, let me just tell you. It's going to be different. It's going to be different. He's going to be rejected. And I know you think the Messiah, perhaps, is going to be welcomed in and welcomed in and welcomed in. But this guy, he's going to be rejected. They're going to esteem him not. And surely, 
mechanically how this is going to work. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. In other words, he would say, hey, there's going to come a time. There's going to come a time when our transgressions, our sinfulness, our decisions to rebel against God are going to be afflicted on him. And he is going to physically be pierced because of what we've done, not because of what he's done. But our transgressions, as what happened on the cross, when his wrists were pierced, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, this is the beautiful part, and with his wounds, we are healed. No, if you don't believe in Jesus, that's fine. But let me just tell you what we believe as Christians. You know, read that in a vacuum, you know, separate that, you know, section it off. Here's how we believe this whole thing works as Christians. Is that you and I have a, sin, have, have, have a central problem. The central problem is that we're all sinful. That's not you're a bad person, you're a bad person, you're a bad person. I can't believe you did that. That's for all of us. There is not a perfect person in this building. That we all have layers, that we all have levels we all have past. We all have sinfulness. We all have times that we've rebelled against God. Some of us, is incredible seasons. For some of you, you know, you grew up in church a long time and, you know, you just rebelled for like a weekend and it was just kind of a bad weekend. For some of you, you know, you had a time of rebellion. You had a week. You had a month. You had a semester. Some of us, we had a year. We had a few years. Shoot, for some of us, we had a decade or a string of decades. Well, we just rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. And we knew what we ought to do, but we decided not to do it. We knew what we ought to do, we decided not to do it. We knew what we ought not to do, but we did it anyways. And he'd say, come on. We've all sinned, as Paul would say. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And what we believe as Christians is because of our sinfulness, and not just our rebellion in a season, but our continual sinfulness, because I still sin, and you still sin, and the holiest person in here still sins. Is that the sinfulness, our sinfulness, puts us in a position to where we cannot encounter God's holiness. Because he's holy, and he's pure, and he's perfect. And since I'm sinful, and since I'm not holy, and pure, and perfect, in order for me to have a right standing or a right relationship with God, I have to have no sin me and around me. But that's something that I can't do myself. So what the thought is, what the belief is, is that when Jesus died on the cross, he bore the weight, he bore the sin, he bore the guilt, he bore the shame of the entire world as an atoning sacrifice, making us right with God, giving us a right standing, doing for you what you couldn't do, doing for me which I couldn't do, which is to unsin myself. And Isaiah Hundreds of years before this happens. Says the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That he's going to go on. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. And we have turned everyone his own way. 
And the Lord has laid on him, this suffering servant, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened his mouth not. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In fact, if you read the account, this is fascinating. If you read the account of when Jesus, when Jesus and they're accusing him and they're accusing him, they're accusing him, and they speak and they're saying, speak, 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 and it gets to the point where Pilate gets so fresh, he says, don't you understand that I have the power to crucify you or free you? I mean, Pilate's just so fresh because Jesus won't say anything. Isaiah's and they're saying, I'm telling you. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, he didn't die for what he did. He bore the sins of other people. He bore the transgressions of other people. Yet, this is fascinating, It was the will of God to crush him. Now, pause. That is a huge statement. What Isaiah says there is just so you know, just so you know, this idea, this suffering servant isn't a new idea, that this was the will of God. This wasn't God freaking out. This wasn't God saying, oh my gosh, what do I do? This was the will of God, that God had a plan, that God had a plan, that God had a plan before the redemption or before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. In the entire Old Testament, what we believe is that God was building towards this plan. It wasn't, okay, it's going, it's going, it's going, it's going. Old system, old system, old system, old system. Old Testament, old Testament, old Testament, old Testament. Jesus. It was that God was building something and saying, there is a will that I have, and I'm going to send prophets, and I'm going to layer with parallels, and I'm going to send promises, and I'm going to do all kinds of things. I'm going to have festivals that all cumulatively build so that when my son, my suffering servant, comes to planet Earth, I don't want you to miss it. John, John, as he's writing the book of Revelation, as he's talking about the people who would trust in in Jesus, would say it this way. He would say, before the foundation of the earth was lain, the Lamb of God was slain. In other words, God had a plan the entire time, and it was the will of God. In fact, some translations say it this way, that it pleased God to crush him. Because this was the plan and the purpose of God the entire time. In the entire Old Testament, both reads as a story, as well as all kinds of parallels, as well as all kinds of prophecies, as well as all kinds of promises to, con- to continually, communally, or to cumulatively build to what would become the birth and the death of Jesus. So that it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. In other words, Paul says, let me just tell you how this is going to work out mechanically. That he's going to make many people who wouldn't be righteous, righteous. He's going to enable, he's going to empower, he's going to provide a way for you to have a right standing with God. 
And he's going to bear the, ga- the, the shame and the guilt and the iniquities. Therefore, I will demi- divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet, and let me just, we're gonna, this is kind of the last verse. Let me just tell you. This is, to me, this is the thing that when I read through this, this is the thing that when I start to think about, well, maybe there's other ways. This is the thing that when I start to think about, well, maybe, I don't know, Jesus, I mean, so long ago. This is the thing that drives me back to the realization. This is the verse, or this is one of the verses that continually drives me back to the realization that hundreds of years before Jesus stepped foot on planet earth Isaiah summarized in a sentence the gospel message before the gospel was the gospel before the good news of Jesus bearing our sin providing a way for us to be right with God was possible Isaiah summarizes it and says yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession." For the transgressors. He says, This is how it works. He's gonna bear the sins of many. And he's going to intercede on behalf of the transgressors. Now, again, I don't know where you are, don't know who you are, don't know where you are in faith. And truthfully, over this four-week period that we've gone through, this is only a taste. I mean, if we were going to just completely flesh out all the different ways that God was building the redemption of mankind through his son Jesus, the way that Jesus would become the pinnacle, we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. Let me just say, if you're not fully convinced, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home, and I want you to investigate for yourself. I want you to go home, and I want you to, if nothing else, I want you to go home, and I just want you to read for yourself. You've got some things that I said. You've got some thoughts that I have. Have some, have some of your own thoughts. I just want you to go home and just start reading Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah 52 and 53. And then, and then, here's the good news. You're smart people, and you know how to use Google. You can research for yourself. Jesus in the Old Testament. You can research yourself the Messiah in the Old Testament. You can research for yourself all the prophecies that are in the Old Testament. You can research for yourself all the parallels that are in the Old Testament. But please, 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 this is so important. This is so important. This is so important. You cannot be lazy about this because what we believe is eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. And as an adult, as an adult, you deserve it to yourself to come to your own conclusion if you haven't yet. You deserve to years for yourself to wrestle with this idea of Jesus. You deserve to wrestle with the idea of the fact that we are all sinful, that there is no one in this building who has completely been perfect, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so how do I find myself in a right relationship with a perfect and a pure and a God who's bigger and better than I am? You deserve it to yourself to research to study, to investigate, and to come to an adult conclusion about who you believe the Son of God is. Because what we believe is that there was this entire story, this redemption of man that was laid out 
from the foundation of the earth. And God would send prophets. God would give promises. God would give parallels. God would build into the rhythm of the nation of Israel, festivals. And the entire thing would over and over and over and over point to Jesus. Because come on, if you were God, if you were God, and you were going to send your one and only son, wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't you want there to be so many parallels? Wouldn't you want there to be so many prophecies? Wouldn't you want there to be so many promises that when hundreds of years later, when thousands of years later, people would look at this, it would almost seem undeniable that you had a plan for your son because if you sent your son or if I sent my son into the world to die, I wouldn't want anyone to miss it. And neither does our Heavenly Father. And perhaps you're not convinced, but I'm convinced that either way, you ought to investigate and research and come to an adult decision and conclusion about this guy who was named Jesus, born in a town called Nazareth, who would someday could be called Jesus the Christ, would simply meant Jesus the Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah that everyone talked about, the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, here's how we're going to end. We're going to pray. And for some of you, perhaps today's your day. For some of you, perhaps today's your day. Maybe for the first time ever, maybe for the first time in a long time, whatever it is for you, you've come to an adult decision that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. That you want to place your faith, your hope, and your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That when he died on the cross, he didn't simply bear the sin of the world, but he bore your sin. He did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, which is to give you a right standing with God. That he took your sin, he washes you clean, that when God looks at you, he sees his son Jesus, and you are perfect and righteous in his sight. Perhaps for you for the first time, today's your day. And so I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do that. To pray that prayer. And here's how we're going to do it. About halfway through the prayer, I'm going to count to three. I'm going to give you the invitation to raise your hand. Let me, let, me, let me tell you a couple things. One is I, I just detest the idea of, you know, we're going to sing 35 verses of amazing grace and come as you are. And anybody and everybody. And there's five more people here. I can feel it. I know it. Because no, here's why. Here's why. When you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, people who come to the realization that they just encountered Jesus, the one true living God, it happens over and over. Again, you read, read this for yourself. What happens is Jesus talks to them. They say, oh my gosh, we met Jesus. We met the Messiah. You know, he did this for me. He did that for me. He healed me. He forgave me. You know, he did whatever he did. And Jesus said, okay, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. And they'd go from whatever town they were in, and they'd go back to the town. They'd be like, guys, you won't believe what happened. We met Jesus. You're just like, shut up, shut up. They're like, no, you know. Now it's like the opposite. You're just like, go tell everybody. We're like, no. You know, so here, no, and here's what I believe, that if you genuinely, if you genuinely encounter Jesus, if you genuinely encounter, there's nothing I can talk you out of, just, I mean, raise your hand, that's like stupid, you're like, dude, I would like, take off my Nikes that I got on, throw them at the roof, run a circle, and, 
whatever weird thing you can think of. Like, that's what I would do because I just, I, I mean, come on, my sin's forgiven, ultimate love, ultimate grace, ultimate forgiveness, and God did all this for me, and I can now have a relationship with him. I can be righteous in his sight, and I can have a, an intimate relationship with a God who I not just think is God, but my heavenly Father. Are you kidding me? So I'm going to count to three in the middle of the prayer. And if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand of a sign that just simply acknowledges that you, in fact, are placing your faith, your hope, and your trust for the salvation of your soul in a God who had a plan since the beginning of the world. And that he was pleased. And it was his will to send his son as an atoning sacrifice to pay for the sin, to bear the sin of the people who had rebelled, but for some unknown reason, God had so much mercy on that he gave his one and only son. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for preserving these documents. Thank you so much for allowing us to wrestle with this. God, we pray, I pray, that for anyone in the room who perhaps for the first time is considering, is thinking about, maybe right now is just super nervous about placing their faith, their hope, their trust in you. Their faith, their hope, and their trust in the God who had a plan. Their faith, their hope, and their trust in the God who since the foundation of the world was revealing to mankind his plan to be redeemed by his son, Jesus. God, I pray that as that is probably already revealed in their heart, you would simply give them the courage to act. The courage to act on what they already in their heart know is true. God, I pray that you would give courage and strength to act on the revelation that's already happened, the realization that's already happened in our heart. And if that's you, if you for the first time as an adult, maybe the first time coming back to this idea as an adult, want to place your faith, your hope, and your trust in a God who so loved you that he not only gave his one and only son, but built up and built up and built up and built up because he so loved us, he didn't want us to miss it. So if that's you, and for the first time, maybe the first time in a long time, you want to place your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus. When I count to three, I want you to raise your hand. One, two, three. Wonderful. That's great. That's awesome. If you just pray, if you just raise your, raise your hand, just pray this prayer with me. It's just acknowledging, putting words to what's already happening in your heart. Say, Jesus, come be my Lord. Come be my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for taking my guilt. Thank you for taking my shame. I give you my heart. I give you my life. Come be 
my Lord and my Savior. And I'm so thankful that since the foundation of the earth, you had a plan. So I give you my heart. I give you my life. Come be my Lord and my Savior. And it's in the incredible name of Jesus that we all pray this. Amen.